0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Abdi Grimm, who is a software developer, consultant, coach, speaker, and author of the books, Confident Ruby and Exceptional Ruby. Abdi is also the creator and head gardener of Graceful Dev. Abdi joins us from St. Louis, Missouri. Or is it St. Louis, Missouri? I can never remember. Missouri. Avdi Grimm, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your time in the industry, what do you believe are a few characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software?
1: Um, that's a good, really interesting question. I think I think more often about the characteristics of the teams maintaining them, uh, than the software itself, um, because I think that often makes or breaks it. Um, Well-maintained software, uh, has, I think, has a lot of attention paid to documentation. Uh, That's one thing that stands out. And that can take a lot of forms.
0: Such as, do you feel like there's a big distinction between where you document the code itself versus... Auxiliary documentation around things, readme files, or...
1: So, yeah, I mean, there's so many places that we document our code, ranging from the not-so-effective, which is like, oh, that's only documented in a ticket somewhere that we worked on at some point, to documentation that you find in wikis, which also I've found over the years, I really wanted to believe in that one, but that one, I think, has been problematic because it's, it's just... No matter what you do, it's out of sight and out of mind, and it tends to it tends to get out of date really fast. Nobody has you know the the impetus to work on it um, and keep it up to date. You know then you have commits, you have the messages and commits, and I think those are really important. I think especially a lot of times we try to document decisions in comments, but I that really belong in commit messages because they document our thinking at that time, as opposed to, you know, the code may change out from under the, the comments around it. So that's an important one. Comments in the code are important as well for the, the why rather than the, the how. Lately I've really been liking versioned documentation in the code base that's, you know, kind of like a wiki, but it's really just markdown that's in in the um, the repo. Just because you, know, you can version that right along with the code. You can update the code and then you can update the documentation and that goes with that version of the code, but not necessarily any versions that came before. And you can see like, okay, this, this documentation hasn't been updated not nearly as recently as the code that it applies to. So maybe it's out of date. That's a good one. You know, one of my favorite forms of documentation is executable documentation in various forms. And I view all of this as kind of a, a continuum of reproduction uh from the the readme which is like telling people how to re- to reproduce something manually and then you get into automations you get into like in a for instance in a ruby or rails project you get rake tasks uh that document how to do something and um can often tell you like how to work with a particular service that we work with uh in the form of code that runs or maybe at least ran at some point um i really like that kind of documentation
0: I'm curious about that, like rake task type of example there. Can you, do you have like a, a recent example off the top of your head that I kind of dig into a little bit? So
1: I've been working for my site, Graceful Dev. I've been working on this kind of recursive book, which is a book about project automation. And it is also, it documents the automation for the book. It's kind of a cycle and um, it's a, it's a fun exercise in these kinds of, of things. And, I was writing uh, yesterday about a part where I wanted to do some writing to an external API as part of pushing the book to a a learning management system, which meant that I first needed to figure out how this API worked and what kind of data models it used um, in a way that was more concrete than just like reading the the documentation that it had. And so rather than play around with it at the command line in curl or play around with it from like postman. I instead started writing an automation, which all it would do is just pull down some info from this API, which wasn't ultimately what I needed to do. Ultimately, I needed to write something to the API. But to figure out how this API works, I started writing an automation that was just like fetch course info. You know, I wrote a line and then I executed the rake task and I saw that that worked. And so I added another line to the rake task and I executed that. And if that broke, you know, then I revisited it and figured out what, what I was doing wrong. And I just kept adding to this rake task um, and committing. And it's not a task that does something the project needs by itself, um, but it, di- it does document in an executable way how to interact with this API, how to set net HTTP up to talk to this API, how to do the authentication and stuff like that. Uh, and and I, I'm really a big fan of that. Lately, I've also been really applying that a lot in the form of dev containers. So like every project that I work on has expectations about tools that are installed and libraries that are installed, dependencies, operating system versions and stuff like that. And if I can create a container for development for that project, then that container definition, the Docker file, the the Docker compose file. Can contain an enormous amount of information about what this project needs in a way that's very portable. And you can, you know, even if you're not going to use it in Docker, you can read through that and be like, okay, here's where they're installing, you know, curl. Here's where they're installing um, the MySQL libraries or whatever, and and understand what the what this project needs to run.
0: That's great. Do you, you know, kind of digging into that example with your rake task there and and documenting that for project you're working on. It's something that I've done over the years where you can go into Rails console or, you know, like a Rails app and you're like, well, I want to play with this gem to kind of interact with an API, but I'm not totally sure how their system works because not all documentation on APIs is just super intuitive or, or sometimes even you want to pull some real data down, you know, from, you know, so you're playing around with it. So I've kind of taken that approach as well where I might put together a rake task that I can keep rerunning And like, okay, I get a little further, spitting out some output or something to, you know, in the terminal or whatever. So I'm just, just so I can kind of play around with it without having to build a whole interface to it or plug in everything behind the scenes and everything. So it's kind of a way to debug or just maybe even just understand how I might approach interacting with this, you know, this client library and an API or something. If I'm, especially if I'm using some sort of open source library where the documentation is not super it doesn't seem to be applicable to exactly what I'm doing right now, but I want to know, okay, what kind of data might I get back? Or what does that actually look like with this client's data where, rather than some generic stuff that might be in the documentation?
1: Right, right. And there are a lot of nice interactive ways to, to, to do that kind of research and discovery. Um, but I really like to lean on ways that give me a persistent and shareable and versioned notebook or sandbox which is which is what you get when you decide to go ahead and use your project automations to do that and save it there, leave it there. You know, you don't have to to take them out once you understand it.
0: I always think about how when I'm pairing people and I start doing that, I'm like, well, part of my motivation there is to avoid copy pasting. I'm like, okay, I'm in an editor, I got this like I'm interacting with a client API and I've got these like four or five lines that are doing some stuff. If I'm you know, one approach might be just copy and paste this up in a Rails console and see what's happening and then but then I have to go back and repaste it again every time I want to do it. And you're like, where am I at? Or have I set the variables and that it's depending on? So that can get a little tricky and stuff like that. And you can also use things like uh, you know, open up a debugger or a pry in the middle of that and, and interact with it as well, which is pretty awesome. Anything that you can turn into a
1: REPL, like any process that you can turn into a REPL, I think it becomes more, becomes more tractable.
0: I hadn't thought about keeping that stuff around for a long time, though.
1: I mean, I think at some point you need to figure out how you're going to organize it in a way that says, okay, this stuff over here is research and this stuff over here we actually expect to run. But yeah, I don't like have a huge problem with having your research version somewhere that you can find it and actually try and run it.
0: That makes sense. Do you use the uh, metaphor technical debt, debt much? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think
1: it's, it's still a useful metaphor. I think it's, it's, it has its limitations, uh, but it is a useful metaphor.
0: How do you define that or talk about it with people that you're collaborating with? Is Do you find that people share the same understanding of what technical debt is, or do you feel like it's drastically different in every team that you've ever been a part of? I think
1: most teams I've interacted with have a roughly similar idea of technical debt. Their management doesn't always have the same idea that they do, but I think most most developers seem to understand that it refers to friction. It refers to the parts that constantly give you friction. You know, some people take the metaphor really seriously in terms of like we are choosing to go into debt here. Some take them less, take it less seriously just using it as, as a general term for these are the, the areas of friction in our code base.
0: How do you go about like organizing technical debt type tasks versus like say new feature bug fixes? Do you feel like there's been a common thread that you've seen has worked well in teams where they can properly identify it prioritize it and then potentially even sell the the like say the business people I'm air quoting that uh, the the product owners or whoever's making the decisions about what priorities look like to kind of advocate for improving some of that or re- reducing friction well, I
1: think it's really important to have some data collection on like you know, your churn, you're like this, which parts of the code base are the sources of defects and which parts of the code base are where gets changed the most and where, where do those collide, those sections collide. You know, if you have some data over where, you know, where the most of your churn is, you can say, okay, we, we'd really like to to um, to spend some time cleaning this up. But I mean, most of the time, that's really more of an organizational issue Um, A lot of times it's organizational debt as opposed to technical debt, because it's really about, I mean, where you find this stuff is, is where people's understandings have to need to come together. It's in the code where people, a bunch of people's understandings need to come together. And sometimes that's artificially put together. You know, that's, that's an area with that might've been artificially dried up and maybe two people, they could be, it could be separated out and you could allow a little bit of, dare I say, dampness. And allow things to sort of to proceed two different things to proceed their own ways um, because they're really different. They might be sort of different facets on the same domain understanding, but they are different. You know, coming from different angles. Something that has really changed how I think about technical debt, though, is I think I think there's a there's been an understanding for a long time that we deliver features, business comes up with features that they would like, and we deliver those features. But then along the way, sometimes we accidentally deliver some technical debt too, or maybe deliberately, if, if we're just deliberately going fast. I don't know. And, and the, the, the way that my mental model has just completely changed is I don't really believe that we deliver features anymore. I don't think that that's a useful model of what we do. Um, What we do is we is we carry capabilities or we support capabilities Whichever word you prefer and I think of this mentally. I think of this in like as like a a computer role-playing game where you have an inventory Um, maybe one of those games that has like the grid inventory where you have to kind of slot things into the grid and Eventually you run out of space It's not like you can make a feature take up zero space we like to believe that there is such a thing as done for a feature um, and that if we could just do this right, uh, we could figure out how to deliver features and have them be done. And I think that has, has we've given ourselves an enormous amount of, of institutional guilt over the fact that we can't seem to deliver features and have them stay done. Bec- and I say guilt because I, I see this in so much software writing, uh, this sort of idea lurking in the room that what we what we're striving for the the ideal that we're striving for is that we could deliver a feature and have it be done and stay done um, and not have to revisit it constantly, whether because of bugs or because of misunderstandings and that's just not that's not what we do what we do is we support people we support capabilities that hopefully people want and that is Always, every capability is always going to add to our inventory until it's gone, until it's dead, until it's out of the code base. And we can, we can defrag that, you know, we can do things that enable us to sort of move those into smaller slots in our inventory and slot them, you know, a bunch of things together until, so that they, they really take up a smaller space in our, in our shared mental inventory, in our inventory of maintenance. And that's totally possible. And that's, I think, what we're doing a lot of the times when we talk about refactoring, we talk about refurbishment, we talk about redesign. That's what we're doing is we are kind of, we're, we're smoothing off some of those rough edges and allowing things things in our inventory to take up a smaller amount of space. But ultimately, there is a limit to how much a team, a a, a system of people, a socio-technical system of people and software can support. And we, and I think that it's important you know, that so that's like the thing that's really changed my thinking the most is we need to reflect that to the business that like this isn't like it's not reasonable to expect that at some point the feature will be done and it won't take up any any space for us anymore.
0: You're going to have to maintain it. Right. And continue iterating on it. Our cust our the world is going to move out from under us. The, the,
1: the services we depend on are going to move out from under us. The software the libraries we use are going to version out from under us. Uh, And our customers are going to move out from under us in in what they expect from us. Um, You know, so no, it's, you know, until it's gone, it's always going to be part of the capability that we carry.
0: So another thing I was looking forward to speaking with you was related to DevOps. And so in preparing for this conversation, you conveyed that DevOps is a philosophy, not a rule, which perked my ears up because I've always, I'm creating, I'm labeling tickets in our ticketing system. Like, oh, this is something, this is something for the DevOps person to work on. What do you mean by this?
1: Okay. All right. So I should probably preface this with, with the statement that I am definitely not a DevOps expert. There are some folks out there. I'm not one of them. I was kind of late to boning up on all this stuff and I've been doing my best to read up on some of the kind of formative texts of, of this discipline and, and what it's all about. And it's, I mean, it was hard for me at first, and I want to say this because I suspect I'm not the only one. It was hard for me at first because it's not like a technology. It's not even a management style exactly, like you know, matrix management or something. Um, but but I did you know I did read some of the the sort of founding documents. I read the 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 Phoenix Project. Recently, I read Team Topologies, which is a nice little book that that kind of slots into that that world of literature and i've started to you know listen to more people in that field and and i mean my the my biggest takeaway is that it's about stream alignment uh, which okay uh, buzzword it's about like we were saying you're here to support capabilities you're not here to churn out widgets we are here as a software organization as a socio-technical system to support certain capabilities you know somebody can can type in an address and get a and get a map to that address or something that is a capability that you add to somebody's life and as an organization, we support that, you know, from the perspective of people writing software that does that routing and um, people working on systems that, that host the software and people who, who respond to support requests and, and all kinds of things. You know, the, the message of like the, the Phoenix Project and related, related work was it works better when we all work together, when we're not throwing stuff over the wall at each other. To, to say, okay, I am done with this feature, now I'm gonna hurl it over the wall at, at Ops, and they are going to put it into production. It works a lot better when everybody's working on that together. They're, they're not, they're not um, treating it as, you know, basically a waterfall process. You know, the, my understanding is that it's a philosophy of let's blur those lines more. Let's, you know, as developers, we should also be writing the automations that perform our continuous delivery. And we should be maintaining the automations that perform our continuous delivery and be responsible for them. You know, if 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 our capabilities aren't getting to the end user, we're not done. So, you know, when you listen to the people that, that kind of coined the term DevOps, they are talking about bringing those skills into your development organization. They're talking about being able to be responsible for your whole continuous delivery pipeline. And yet what I have seen uh, in what people talk about, you, how people use the term and in consulting, I've seen people talk about it like it's a role, like it's the ops role, um, which is exactly what we were trying to get away from is having this completely divided off ops role. And you know, in team topologies, what they say is that it's totally fine to have a team whose job is to be very good at this stuff and to go around from software team to software team in your organization Helping them level up, helping them get to the point where they can be responsible for their own delivery pipeline, and you know spending six weeks doing that and then moving on like that that is the devops quote role that makes sense. but if you're throwing stuff over a wall to your
0: devops person in order to get it into production, that's not devops that's ops inside my head i'm like I'm thinking through a couple different thought patterns here one I'm like I understand the well. It kind of feels like a role in some ways because there's like, well, is there going to be some certain people that are way more ex- skilled at this because they know they know the infrastructure and they understand like if you're pushing things out and automating delivery through some cloud platform, you know, AWS cloud, Google Cloud, whatever, right? And then th- there's there's like a domain knowledge you got to learn around all that and keep upping with with all the tooling there while you're trying to keep up with the tooling of the programming language or the framework or whatever you're using yourselves or the multiple frameworks you're using just to put out like a new feature capability, you know, like, Oh, we got to add a couple new form fields to this form, you know, this website and this one thing, and then have some reporting, get updated as a result of that. Oh, I also need to understand the whole pipeline and how this all gets connected together and wondering the thing that I've keep coming back to in my head is just like, it feels like there's a lot of prerequisites getting involved in, in, in the process but maybe I'm thinking too granular to the individual and maybe it's just like understanding that there's a team dynamic but how do you not end up with some sort of specialization in the same that you would be with like certain people might have a lot more experience refactoring or system you know architecting everything and they can't be part of every single conversation and the junior developer on the team that joins is like cool I've got I've been doing this for nine months now and wait what am I doing with Docker and all this you know stuff like where is that and like, or, or is this something that DevOps is this something that really larger organizations can fully support, whereas a small scrappy team, you're like you, maybe you're going to be a little bit more specialized.
1: Um, I mean, I, I honestly think in the in the small scrappy teams is where you most need to to um, absorb the DevOps mindset, the, the philosophy of we are responsible for this. This is our this is our thing. It's our pipeline. Our you know we're delivering this straight to the customer. And and if if there's some someone in there who's like. A bottleneck and an opaque black box to our delivery—that's that's not going to support our process very well. You know, like I said, uh, in larger organizations, you do see—I um, think they call them an, an call it an enablement team, which is the like the the team of people who are really pros at the like delivery side and the 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 CI side, and they're going around. They're spending some time embedded with teams to kind of get to to work with them to build out. An integration and delivery infrastructure that the, and and build out that infra, that understanding with them so that they feel like they have some confidence around their particular um, integration and delivery setup. And you also see in larger organizations, you see a team who is responsible for basically coming up with best practices and like moving us all over. Like, oh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get an account with Circle CI. And we're going to spin that up and we're going to figure out how to use it well in our organization. And then we're going to promulgate those practices, maybe come up with some like boilerplate for process for projects that we recommend you all use. I'm not a big fan of like requiring everyone to use the same process because that kind of goes against team autonomy. But but, uh, you know, you can have teams who are responsible for like. This, this this is how we do things. Unless you have a, a really good reason, a better idea and a good reason for it, this is how we do things here crib off of the you know these practices. So I think that does make sense. But I, I think that, that we should really like the, the DevOps idea is that we should constantly be pushing back on that the impulse to specialize, to hyper specialize and make delivery somebody else's problem. I I should probably like like spell out like the problems I've seen with this. And, you know, the the biggest problem I've seen is just uh, people being blocked on, you know, continuous integration issues and delivery issues that they are not empowered to fix. You know, sometimes for minutes, sometimes for hours, sometimes for days, because it's somebody else's problem. And I think that's that's just so, like, it takes away so much from this wonderful world that we have now of, of being able to do continuous delivery, you know, and and being able to do, like, very fast, incremental agile development, that if we can
0: avoid that, then we should. We'll be back with our interview with Avdi in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider walking out into the street with a big piece of chalk and writing on the sidewalk, maintainable.fm is my, one of my top 20 technical podcasts about software development. Hashtag maintainable software. Hashtag best practices. Or you could just write a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. With that, let's get back to our interview with Avdi Grimm. Have you seen any, seen any teams or been part of a team that you felt like has that a really, have been really effective at saying, keeping their dependencies or their frameworks, like say Rails or whatever they're using, like keeping those core libraries and frameworks up to date while shipping new capabilities? Or has that always been like, a oh, we should probably get around to that at some point and it gets kicked down the curb a year, five years? You know, the last, uh, the last group
1: that I did a fair amount of consulting for did a pretty good job of that. They had some people that were very just felt very motivated to keep things up to date and and you know, just do the legwork. It, it takes sometimes it takes having somebody who's empowered, um, like a, a you know, staff engineer level person who's who can choose to not work on tickets and choose to just work on going through a code base doing all the annoying fiddly bits to um to get it, you know, running on the next version of Rails or, or the next JavaScript framework version or whatever um so i think that's that's a pattern that seems to help is having that person
0: have you seen it been very effective where those people have been able to help spread that skill set or confidence or comfort because i mean i'm sure you've, you've been in the scenario where like okay we're gonna create a branch we're gonna start going down the path that we're gonna upgrade you get a couple days into it you're like okay this is opening up a bunch of rabbit holes and things that rabbit I'd, holes yeah this is gonna be bigger i'll come back to this so i had to jump over to something else a couple weeks go by you dig a little bit for, where was i <sighs> and then it keeps getting you know, you've got those branches like every project i feel like i ever see has some branch up on github or, get, or Bitbucket bit or whatever that's like an attempted upgrade that hasn't been touched in like a year and you're like oh yeah we tried but kind of hit a bunch of hit a wall and didn't know where to proceed and and the, the world has shifted since then, as you said earlier, like the all this stuff is going to change out from underneath you unless you you stick around and just stay where you're at, which isn't great either. yeah, I mean that
1: that that group that I was I'm thinking of, they actually had um this changed my thinking a little bit. They had a pretty strong policy of we don't lock things down version wise if we can avoid it. And we, we use like Dependabot to just constantly accept updates and review updates. And that's like part of everyone's job is to look at those look at those dependabot tickets and if it's if, if there's no red flags, then go ahead and approve it. I mean, I think you kinda have to accept a culture of it's better to break things by upgrading than it is to allow them to fall behind. You know, fall fail forward is the way I think of that, or fall forward. Is, you know, and and maybe, yeah, maybe you'll have to to fix something that broke because you updated.
0: That always comes back to touching on the I mean, what is the 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 alternative there? Is it that in the head I would imagine there's a lot of people like, well, I don't feel confident enough in our tests that's gonna catch something, right? And so it's like if you don't feel confident there, when will you ever and then so there's always like this little void of like, well, we'll get some more time to backfill some of the missing tests at some point so we feel more confident, but then that may or may not ever happen. And so then the upgrade for a library or whatever, doesn't happen. becomes this kind of like chicken egg problem, where as you're saying, to take the leap and push the upgrade.
1: I, okay. So my opinion on that is um, your tests are never going to save you there. They're just not, that's not what they're there for. Tests in general, I mean, my, my opinion after, you know, low these odd 20 years or whatever, is that I still love tests, I still love testing, I still love um, test-first development, um, where appropriate. Um, but people are way too clinging about their tests. I think people need to be way more cavalier about throwing tests away. If the test is in your way, get rid of it. Because, and and you know, for me, part of that I can say that partly because for me, a big, a big, because I do a lot of tests first, a big, a big, um, advantage is the design aspect. Like the test helps me design it. And then after that, okay, it's already done a good job. So anything after that, you know, any regression testing it does is gravy, but, um, your tests aren't going to save you from up- upgrade problems. Cause the, you know, the, the new library version is going to find some way of breaking your software that has nothing, you know, that you never thought to test even if you're very diligent about it. And that's not what the tests are there for anyway. They're, you know, they're there for your own logic. The thing that tells you if things are broken is production. Ultimately, you know, that is the truth. That is the the ground level of truth is, is it working for people in production or not? And, and there are so many things that the tests won't catch. So for me, you know, it's it's about... It's about having tests that are close or even better, be better are in production. I'm a really big fan of, like, if you don't have enough people to exercise your software, then have some something that acts like people out there that's testing production just constantly, or, you know, periodically anyway, that just puts it through its paces, puts it through its paces. You know, that'll tell you a lot. And also have, you know rather than leaning on your testing, rather than putting that effort and time into your tests, into your like tests that run before deployment, um, put that time into your monitoring, into your your statistics gathering and your tracing and your observability. Put that, you know, make sure, get get yourself a, you know, a honeycomb account if you don't have one already, get that observability in there and start figuring out how to use it. Because ultimately that's, I think, way more valuable for this kind of thing than than your test suite
0: i think that's some really good recommendations there for for the audience to kind of think through and listen i'm i'm gonna have to do a little bit of soul searching there myself because i think that ends up being one of my hurdles too is being like well i think i've been hit on the uh my wrist has been slapped a few too many times in the past for shipping out things like oh sorry i didn't know that was going to break something because clients and customers can get a little upset at times right when there's a like and, and then you worry about like oh that one client is like can't let that happen again right like you mess up our invoicing you're like wow we we can't just sit here forever but now we fix it maybe it's a couple hours of inconvenience to deal with that but then you're not worrying about like being further and further behind on some some dependency library or something like that or the other option being remove dependencies is another tactic to some people or seem to be talking more about like do we need so many dependencies in our systems Say when I say dependencies for our audience, I'm talking about like open source libraries that were conveniently popping into our gem file and being like, "Great, we've got all this extra capabilities that we didn't even know we needed." Well, and and also like to jump
1: back to to a, something I said earlier with the with the idea of observability, and part of your observability is your relationship with support. Even if you don't have like super you know, built out observability um, instrumentation, you know, if you if if you're working on a project that has a support staff having a really good relationship with them and talking to them constantly can be so, so valuable in understanding what's actually going on with your software. Also, what people are actually using, which is a big deal too. Um, But yeah, seeing what's actually going on with it is huge. And also, working closely with your support staff can give you ideas about amelioration. I think about that a lot. Like, do we focus on avoiding bugs, avoiding failures, or do we focus on... Amelioration there 's another word that 's easier to say, but i can 't think of it right now and, and that that kind of comes out of like the resilience discipline like the the organizations that focus the most on getting it right and on correctness are the ones that fail the hardest, whereas the organizations that are a little bit on their toes because they're handling surprises um that 's where the resilience comes from is that is is how do we handle surprises and and like that can be as simple as Letting support know when something might be hinky Listen, and hearing from them and then being like, okay, we need to we need to communicate to our customers about this. We need to get out ahead of it and communicate to our customers about it. Way too many organizations handle this stuff by feeling so ashamed that they broke something that they go dark and trying to fix it, you know, and that's where like apologizing as fast as you can can probably buy you a lot more than a more co- comprehensive test suite.
0: I like that. Um, thinking about how teams are just focusing on how are we going to be reactive, but how do we handle surprises? One of my teams' like approaches and things we commit to our clients is like no surprises. Which now I'm starting to have second second guess that a little bit, being like, no, we might surprise you, but we'll be we'll be there to help support it immediately to to address the problem, and and we'll all be better off for having gone through that process. But you can't guarantee no failure, right? And you can't be there's also like that, that interesting thing. It was like, you feel like there's a spectrum of being really cautious about what you're shipping versus, you know, there might be, you know, we've heard of, you know, move quick and break things and that can be taken in a lot of different ways. And you can just be super rogue and not have, not really invest in stability, maybe in some ways too. definitely seen a lot of peculiar code bases where like, we're not worried about that stuff because we're just shipping it. So where's that extreme finding that, that, that healthy balance in there of reproducible tests because someone might argue, like, hey, "Don't worry about it until it's a problem." What, how is how, how do you def- help a team understand what the definition of done is, and there's that spectrum there.
1: Right. Yeah. Of course, as, as as you know now, I don't believe in done.
0: Nothing is ever complete.
1: Nothing's ever done. Yeah. Um, this is making me think a little bit. I had to. Sorry, I was typing a little bit on the on the on the mic, but I had to look up. There's this wonderful book, "The Field Guide to Understanding Human Error" by Sidney Decker. You ever uh, heard of him? No, I'm not. He gets cited a lot in the resilience community. He's an expert in like industrial disasters, planes crashing, factories blowing up, that kind of thing. And he's put a lot of research into which organizations handle the, this well and which don't handle it as well. And that's you know one of the things he talks about is if you've got an organization with no surprises, like you know the organization that's got their proudly has their number of you know days you know, 600 days since the last incident, that's the organization that's going to fall the hard, hardest. If you have an organization that's constantly dealing with with incidents, you know, as counterintuitive as it is, that's an organization that knows how to deal with incident, incidents rather than sweep them under, under the rug.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I'm going to have to look up that book and I'll include links to that for the audience in the show notes as well. I want to take this moment to make sure we get a chance to kind of pivot and talk about graceful.dev. So for those in the audience who might not be familiar with it, can you provide a little bit of a high-level introduction to it? Yeah, 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 sure. So graceful.dev, graceful.dev,
1: is my kind of grand unified site of developer training and education resources. I have a number of courses there, and you can either get you can get an individual course or you can uh, sign up for a membership and um, basically, it is an outgrowth of something that I did for many years called Ruby Tapas, which was a, a screencast show, and still is, a screencast show of short-focused, Ruby-centric, not always Ruby, screencasts. I've racked up, a I don't know, 650-odd episodes at this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and anyway, I kind of got to the point where I'd been wanting for a long time to kind of rebrand in a way that reflects that I don't just talk about Ruby. Uh, I talk about a lot of other things, including, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today. So, yeah, Graceful Dev is sort of the next next chapter of Ruby Tapas, plus my other courses are kind of rolled into that.
0: Nice. I saw there was a some content that wasn't by you on there as well, I believe, maybe from some of the people over at Honeycomb is maybe as an example. So, Yes. Are there, so there's some free content that people can go watch as well and get a get a feel for the type of things and topics you're digging into?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, my my um, Particularly uh, my partner, Jessica Kerr, has been working on a course on observability uh, using Honeycomb. Uh, she works at Honeycomb now, and that's kind of a joint project between Honeycomb and, and Graceful Dev.
0: Excellent. We had, um, I'm trying to remember what episode... Jessica was on, but she, she was on maintainable a while back as well. Really enjoyed that conversation. You know, earlier we were talking about technical debt and teams that are needing to advocate to, say, I'm air quoting, again, like the, the people that are deciding what the priorities are. Let's say there's some people that, are, that have been a part of a team for a couple of years. They feel like they've brought up, hey, we feel like we need to deal with some areas of friction, technical debt, whatever they're, however they're referring to that. But they've heard not right now, maybe too many, a few too many times, and so they start to translate to their head like, "Oh, it's not worth even asking about because they're just going to get not, no." They said no, so I'm not. I guess they don't. They don't care about that now. What advice could you offer them on outside of say seeking out a new job? Would you advise them to kind of navigate that to maybe take some corrective action today? Something to think about
1: as an as an individual contributor is that giving folks the benefit of the doubt it is possible that, there, that folks perceive that when you have tried to address areas that bother you before, you've gone down a rabbit hole and, you know, not come up until six weeks later. I say this as someone who is extremely prone to that sort of thing. Uh, you know, looking back over the course of my career, I can definitely see that I've, I'm the sort of person who will dive down a rabbit hole and hyper-focus on something. And, uh, and often they turn out to be larger than, you know, I'm biting off something bigger than I realized. So it is worth considering that maybe people are saying that for that reason. Maybe they aren't just against quality. The only thing that I can think of that's actionable there is getting better at breaking it down into smaller pieces, breaking down that that technical debt, whatever you call it, technical risk. That's another good term, technical risk. Into you know getting good at breaking it down into smaller pieces, biting off smaller pieces, biting off smaller pieces than you previously believed was possible. I mean, that's a whole area too. It would be I would be remiss in this particular conversation not to bring up the book, to bring up Michael Feather's book, uh, working effectively with legacy code. I think that that book is perennially important for this kind of work.
0: That's some good thoughtful advice there, and I appreciate you kind of reflecting on your own. Some of your own rabbit holes you might have gone down over the past. I definitely have been prone to that. But I've also worked with a number of people like that over the years. And it's been interesting when, like, when they would advocate for wanting to do something. You know, After having gone through that experience of, say, managing someone, then I was like, well, you decided on a Friday that you wanted to rewrite this whole library for something we needed to ship early next week. And now it's like the end of the week. And it's hard to explain to the client or whoever that, sorry, this is getting delayed because so-and-so decided to rewrite something on their own. And that's not like necessarily a bad thing, but we're kind of in this weird situation. And so the next, so if you bring it up, like maybe in a retrospective or whatever, your team's like, all right, let's, what worked well. And and that gets brought up. And then, so then starts to build this like interesting assumptions that, Ooh, we're going to, we're going to be in that pickle again. And I don't want to have that awkward conversation again with the client or whoever's paying the bills. And meanwhile, I don't also want to keep someone from trying to be an advocate for, as you said, quality and long-term maintainability of the software. It's an interesting uh, dance between lots of different interests, I suppose.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, sometimes we just want to do a thing because we have a picture in our heads of of how it could be much more elegant than it is. I certainly often, you know, have that. And sometimes that doesn't actually, you know, isn't reflected in any kind of gain for the business. You know, it really depends on how like central that the code is too. Is this, you know, right in like the main line of what we're constantly working on and fighting with, or is it off in the corner somewhere?
0: Hi there. Do you know
1: someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks.
0: My couple of quick last questions for you, Avdi. Uh, I know you mentioned a couple of books already, but is there a non software non technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular basis? I don't know if there's
1: one that I find myself recommending to peers on a regular basis. Um, i I am a fan of so many books that narrowing it down is hard, but i'll I'll tell you one that's given me a bunch of inform inspiration um in the past. A year or two, and it's um I think it's called The Secret Life of Trees. Or maybe it's the hidden life of trees. It's one of those two. And it's about trees. And it's given me a lot of a lot to think about in terms of like how systems, how complex systems work. How complex interdependent systems like software teams work.
0: It's interesting. Is that Peter Woolhabin? Yes, Woolhabin. Excellent. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations and opinions about software development online?
1: Well, you can find me at uh, Avdi, A-V-D-I on Twitter. Uh, you can find my blog at avdi.codes. Uh, lately, I've been writing a lot of stuff about like the business of, quote, a banana stand, of you know my, my like, graceful dev business of content and courses and stuff like that, and, and like the, the nuts and bolts of running a business like that. Um, graceful dev, yep, that's, that's the other big place.
0: Excellent. We'll definitely have those all in the show notes for everybody listening. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Avdi. Thank you so much for talking shop. Thank you for
1: having me.